I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall. It's a little show here on WEHC where we sit and catch up with a graduate of Emory and Henry, and we pretend we're sitting on the Duck Pond Wall. Gail, did you ever do that when you were a student? Absolutely. Who didn't? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Our guest today is Gail Weaver Norwood, Emory and Henry class of 1971. How are you doing? Oh, great to be here. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Monica. Well, sure. Well, we, we have lots about you that we want to talk about and catch up on. But the main reason we're talking today is because you have a book out that is really cool. I'm going to just to, I know this is only for audio, but I want to show you that I have mine right here in front of me called Escape from Grief Prison, A Story of Love, Loss and Healing. This is a this is a big topic. Are you willing to share a little bit about what your story is and how you came to be? as you say, sort of trapped in that grief prison? Sure, yes. You know, I wasn't an English major. I never thought I'd write a book. I had no intentions of one day writing a book or <laughs> anything like that. But because of my life circumstances, I got to a place where I really felt I've got to write this down, what I've just been through. And uh, my life uh, situation was that I had lost my husband of 41 years back in 2013 due to a, a sudden illness. And I had a very tough time getting through that for many years. And I finally did get better and feel better. And I remarried five years later. And within six months, he had passed away from lung cancer. So there I was again, uh, being sentenced back to grief prison. And that's yeah. how the title came to be and what it felt like. I felt like those years, those difficult years were Actually, the, the concept and the imagery about prison didn't occur to me until after I lost my second husband. But looking back on it, I felt like, oh, no, that, that that's like walls around me and where I don't want to be. It's against my will. And it felt like prison. And I thought I was being sentenced again to go back there. Like the social mores say, well, you know, at least one year and one year it's going to be bad. And people would say things about the time. And it felt like the sentence part of it. So I I thought I, I just can't go back there. And I looked for a better way to heal and I felt better equipped after what I'd been through, but I continued to learn more. And that is what I wanted to write down because it was the second round of really learning the lessons that were out there that helped me really feel like, I think I understand this better now and yeah. I do want to still live. So I confess I have not quite finished the book, but, but it's interesting to me how you talk about the fact that so much of dealing with grief was based on what everybody else said it ought to be. They, it's like people told you, here's how it has to happen here. You know, here are the steps, here are the levels. Here, this is what happens in year three. I mean, it's like everybody had some like little playbill you were supposed to follow and how to get over all this. That that's so true. I mean, when you if you haven't ever been through it before, all these things come to you like the gospel truth, and you get pamphlets and books, and they are telling you the way it's going to be, and even the Kubler Ross five stages, which are classic, and certainly there's a lot of good there, but it is still telling you 
that you're going to have to go through all these stages and you're going to go through them and they're in this order and they're going to take this long. And then in the next breath, you'll hear, oh, you do it your way, whatever you want to do. It's all individual. We all do it differently. But that's not really what society expects. They, they really do expect you to take a long time to get over it. And in many cases, it does. Certainly it did for me over three years. I mean, that's a pretty long time. We are influenced. The power of suggestion is alive and well. And it will tell you what to do instead of allowing you and encouraging you to think about choices you have. Do you really believe this? It might be something that's been told to you in complete honesty and sincerity, but for you, it just isn't true. Right. And it takes a lot to to be able to decipher all that and feel like you can make your own choices. That's, I'm struck by what you just said about how society has certain expectations. We had a a death in our family several years ago, and I I watched and listened while one of my family members said, I don't think so-and-so is sad enough. You know, she's not upset enough. And, you know, and I just kind of, I kind of shrugged and I said, well, you know, people experience grief very differently from each other. But we do sort of do that to each other, don't we? We sort of have levels of expectations for how you ought to look and how you ought to act and what you ought not to be involved in right now while you're going through that. Like they won't even expect you to come and do X, Y, or Z because you're, you know, you're still too upset and, and maybe you are, a lot of people are, but you know, I'll be the one to make those choices, not somebody else. Uh, And that's what I learned. And there are choices to be made and, Uh, I have a section in the book that you may not be to yet, but it's grief seminary where I, it felt like at that time after the second loss that I went into a deep period of just learning and prayer and contemplating and saying, you know, this is crazy. I got to make sense of this. And there were many, many topics that I had to grapple with and integrate into my being And all those little things I call courses in grief seminary that I, you know, I did graduate with flying colors. Bless your heart. But it was, uh, it was tough. But, you know, if you, if you go through grief seminary and you learn about letting go, for instance, and acceptance and our higher selves, and what does that really mean? And how can that make a difference to me? But it is, it's a great tool. They're all great tools. So that was Grief Seminary. And that's what I wanted to share with people, just some truths. I talk a lot about truth in the book from the very beginning at the True Story Cafe. I make several trips there and I have lunch. And it's very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but truth is what it is to us, isn't it? And we learn it, we learn it over and over all our lives. And As we grow and age, we can see things more clearly sometimes because truth becomes more real to us or uh, visible. Do you find that it's, even though you are discovering your truth and you are feeling more honest about yourself and who you are and how you're feeling, how do you feel other people accept that? Do Do you find that sometimes it's hard for other people to sort of accept your truth for your truth because it doesn't match their truth? I do. And I think this book pushes some buttons with people who 
may not have been through what I've been through, but we all have loss. So everybody has experience with dealing loss on one level or another. But yes, some people are really challenge me on it. And, you know, how can you say you don't have to do X, Y, or Z because it's so like generally accepted. And my point is that you get to choose and you can understand that you have choices and you don't have to follow the rule book and the 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 prison the grief prison handbook is what i call it that's here you go do this gonna take a year don't move don't sell anything don't get married don't do it you know all these rules yeah or you can say hey i'm gonna write my own rule book yeah but only if you feel it's okay the first time i went through grief i really thought oh well, I don't know anything about grief. These are the experts. They're going to, oh, okay, I'll follow. You tell me that, then I believe you. And I'm going to try to do the best job of getting through this that I can. And it really wasn't in my best interest, emotionally or physically even. Yeah. Well, and bless your heart that you had to do it again so soon afterwards to, to again. And did you feel that what had you learned enough about yourself at that point to be able to maneuver that differently? Not really. I, I really didn't. It was after the second go round and feeling thrust back into it. So against my, I was really against my will the second time, like, oh, no, no, no. And then I started to really learn and absorb things. So yeah. it wasn't uh, the book, writing the book wasn't about journaling or anything to like help me get through grief. But at the time when I had reached a certain point and could look back on it, then I felt that I was able to reinforce things that I had learned. And I could look back and say, oh, you really did a bad job of that. And, and then people would say, oh, you can't say you did a bad job. Grief is grief. Okay, I get that. But I wish I had done it differently. And I think it's okay. I did it my way. And and that's okay. And everybody can do that. A lot of people go through a lot of pain. And um, I think we we just have choices. And you have to really examine that and study it and learn about it and pray a lot. And you can find some answers if you look for them. I I noticed on Facebook, um, a couple of you got into a conversation about some of the the work and research being done now about grief. Um, do you find that that is sort of an area that maybe we don't know as much about as we should psychologically and emotionally? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I had a, a thought during my grief seminary time that just like everything else in life, grief changes and how to manage grief changes. If you think back centuries ago about people, what people went through in grief and wearing black for all these months, and it was just a very set thing. And most widows didn't get remarried. And that was all part of it. We have evolved with grief over the years. And I really think the work that Kubler-Ross did was very important. And she certainly made a lot of strides, but that was many years ago. And I think it is still evolving. We just have more access to information with our internet access now and being able to share with other people. And I do think it's changing and growing and for the best, for the better. Do you think men and women get different messages during times of grief? Yes, I think we all have probably experienced that many widowers actually do a better job of it than we 
do as widows. And they often get right out there again and find another companion. And honestly, I think it's great. They, I don't, I, I can't explain it, but yes, I do think that a, a widow has certain expectations that a, a widower does not have. And it, it seems very uh, socially acceptable for a widower to jump right back on the social scene and keep on living. And you know yeah. what? I endorse it. Do it. Well, Good and I'm really, happy, I'm really happy to hear you say that because I, I confess that I am that person who, who has, you know, stood on the sidelines and shaken my head going, I can't believe he's already eating. But, yeah. you know, but that's I think that's point. because we, you know, women just typically don't do that. You know, it's like the grief period is longer, whether that's now, now you've got me questioning myself, whether that grief period is real or kind of thrust upon us by those social mores that you're talking about. Absolutely. I remember years ago, before any of this happened to me, one of my fr young friends lost a husband probably in, when she was in her 40s. And I remember hearing the statistic that she is more likely to get struck by lightning than find another spouse yep. and have another happy marriage. That was pre- dating sites and all the online stuff that's changed everything. But it was a pretty grim outlook. You lost somebody and, you know, then you're, you know, alone, right. which is really hard. I write a lot about that in the book, how hard that is. That's being in solitary confinement. <laughs> <laughs> that's that part of prison. <laughs> they throw you in that solitary confinement cell and you can't get out. That's really tough. But yeah, I do think that years ago, there was like a real expectation that it's really sorry that happened, but that's it for you. And now yeah. there, now we have, we have choices. I do love the choices mantra that, that you have. I think that's something that can be really, really helpful to people who are dealing with that deep kind of grief. Let, so. let me remind everybody um, that we're speaking today with Gail Weaver Norwood, Emory Henry class of 71, who has just finished writing a wonderful book and has published a wonderful book called Escape from Grief Prison, A Story of Love, Loss, and Healing. Let's talk just a minute about some of the physical aspects of grief because you kind of bumped into some additional complications after you lost your first husband. And I think you feel like probably some of that was brought on from just the trauma of that loss. Um, yes, that's so true. There's um a whole lot that's been written about that. Uh, you've heard about dying from a broken heart. Mm -hmm. And so that is an actual medical uh, concept. I think it happens, or certainly it used to happen perhaps more than now, but there are physical manifestations of great pain. As we all know, I'm not saying anything new, but it really can build up and even affect your blood pressure and uh, you can't sleep well. Um, it, it's, it's pretty widespread that you, and depression, depression comes into it. You're not eating well, it's just a range of things, but it's, it's not the healthiest way to, to manage it. And some of it you can help, but I think it's important to stop and say to yourself, well, see, I didn't do that the first time around. I didn't say, hey, look what you're doing to yourself. Jay, can you get a grip, you know, try to balance this out a little better. No, I just was like, 
it's this is the way it is. It's supposed to be this way and you buy into it and then you just sort of let it stay maybe longer than it needs to be there. So again, I, I say we have choices if you look around and say, try to manage the physical part of it better because definitely, well, we all know about the mind-body connection. And when you're depressed and really preoccupied totally with an emotional pain, it does affect your physical well-being. So it gets very complicated. Yeah. Maybe share with us a couple of things that are activities. You talked about your uh, your grief seminary and, you know, learning learning about learning about yourself more, learning about, you know, your connections more, learning about your spiritual life more. Tell us maybe a little bit about some things that you might suggest to friends when they say, you know what, this has hit me like a ton of bricks and I, I just don't know what, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to, what are some steps I could take, you know, to, to move past, you know, how I'm feeling right now. Well, that is the $65,000 question. (laughs) And that's why the uh, market is full of books on grief, because we're all looking for the answer to that. I tried to share what worked for me and everybody's different. I totally agree with that. But I think it's important to say to yourself when you're in that situation, what are the resources available to me? Because they're there. There are support groups. There are tons of books. I didn't want to go to support groups. For me, that was bad because, or or something I just didn't care to do. I had a very hard time controlling my crying. And when I would be in a public place, I just couldn't not cry. And I, I felt uncomfortable and it just wasn't a thing I wanted to do, sit around with other sad people for an hour. So didn't, that didn't work for me, nor did even seeing my friends. But what did work was reading. And I had several um, wonderful uh, daily emails that were uh, of a religious nature and spiritual nature with words of hope and coping. And I... I just decided, okay, that that works for me. I can sit here and read that and try to, you know, in, integrate it into myself where I can really, and I made this notebook while I was doing all that grief seminary. That's what gave me the idea of it being like a book and being in school. And I would, every time I would find something online that really spoke to me, I'd print it out. And I read it over and over. And every morning, part of my like prayer part was to go through this book and be reinforced. And most of the time in our daily lives, we're just too busy to sit down and take an hour, an hour and a half and read through inspirational things. But sometimes if you're really down and out, that that's you have plenty of time. <laughs> and that's the most important thing you can do that day. That's right. And you're trying to try to heal yourself, whatever it takes. And remember, there's all sorts of resources out there. There are wonderful things and wonderful things online now that I really wasn't aware of. Now there's a bunch of online group support that I probably would have enjoyed because I don't really have to be there. (laughs) If I'm crying on my end, it doesn't really matter. But there, there really are wonderful 
support groups and wonderful people that that just want to help and um so and let your friends in i didn't really do that only only a very few that, but but that's friends hard even want to help and it's so hard for friends to know what to say that's another whole thing i don't have any answer for that but a lot of it that's one reason i didn't want to be around anybody because you know, people want to say something to make you feel better. And oftentimes it's not really the best thing. I know. I know. As I have gotten older, I realize I'd like to take back everything I ever said in a funeral visitation line. You know, I, know. I just would like to have all of it back. And and I don't have a better line yet for that exactly. line. But at the same time, when I'm in that line, I sure think differently about not saying what I used to say. I know that's one one of those experience things. You, I think you a may, lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. You, um, you may not have an answer to this question, but um, was there a moment? Was there a moment when you kind of said, I feel like I'm turning a corner? I think one of the things in grief prison that, uh, that, that was really important to me if I had to say what a moment was, I'll pick that one. In some of my readings, I came across a story about, I think it was a mother who lost her baby and her husband in a car wreck, and she was pregnant with another one on the way. And her story about how she, and I quote, made peace with it. And those words were powerful. And so I think that's one of the biggest messages. You can have every reaction in the world, but until you make peace with it, it's really got a hold of you. Yeah. We come to that place of making peace with it at different times. It might take someone longer or shorter. But if you're aware of that, when I became aware of that, that, oh, I have control over making peace with this and realizing that, hey, it's not personal. From the beginning of time, mankind has had to endure losses, uh, communal, personal, in every way, and learning how to accept it and deal with it and make peace with it makes all the difference. Do you feel, I know you certainly feel stronger, I would, I would hope, emotionally about these things. Do you feel like you've grown in other ways? Like, do you feel like you're the same person you were before all this? I, I feel kind of like I was let in on a secret. And that's what I'm sharing. That's my message that I thought I had to go through this loss in a certain way. And then I thought, I realized I, I didn't, I have choices. So I, I have changed. I feel I have to keep reminding myself and I go through that book still and remember, and I get reinforced and pumped up again. Oh yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, it, I feel like we have more control over our emotional health than we realize we do. And we're so lucky to live in a day where we have so many resources and right. ways to learn and move forward. It's really great. And just grab it, you know, grab it and run. I feel like everybody listening is going to want me to ask this. How are you doing, Gail? <laughs> that's the sequel. <laughs> oh, God, that's the next book. I got you. <laughs> My next book. No, I'll probably never write another book. But in fact, I'm doing great. I'm happy to tell you I remarried in May and I found a wonderful man great. to share my life with. And uh, his name is Steve. And we're we're doing great and enjoying life. And I'm living my message. 
life goes on and life is good. Man, I'm putting that on t-shirts. I'm going to put it on coffee cups. <laughs> the last thing I'm going to ask you, because we're just about out of time, I'm sad to say, because this has been a really good conversation, but um, you're an Emory and Henry graduate. What you said, you weren't an English major. What did you major in at Emory and Henry? Oh, I was elementary education. That's and, right. you know, I was uh, thinking about this, that during the time I was 71, so that's 50 years ago, <laughs> 50 plus, uh, at that time, women did not have all the career choices that they have now. I mean, things were about to change big time, but at that time, <laughs> we were, you know, a teacher, a nurse, or what was the other one? A secretary. Right, <laughs> right. Big one. And and when you go to college, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but Emory was such a great, safe oasis in which to grow and learn and figure all that out. And I always loved children and I thought teaching would be great. Why not? I, I don't know. I didn't really think I could be a nurse, I guess. But anyway, I chose teaching. And then, you know, as at the end of Right as I was graduating, another K-5 at, at Emory had just gone off to be a, a stewardess with American Airlines. <laughs> and I heard about that. And here I was ready to graduate. And I thought, well, what are you going to? Well, I could do that. I could try <laughs> to do that. And just that for sounds, a year. Just that sounds year way more two, interesting than sitting in that elementary school classroom. <laughs> That's right. It really did then. And it wouldn't be permanent. I would only do it for a year or two. You know, that's what stewardesses did back then, because we had to sign a paper that said we would not marry or get pregnant while we were working. Or if we did, that was automatic out. I forgot so, about that. Yeah. So it was really pretty much understood that you would just do it for a very short time. And that was going to be like fun, travel, fun. And then I would come back and be a teacher. And that was my life plan. And it was, you know, pretty solid. But during that time, then we had all the transitions in the airline world. And before you knew it, stewardesses became flight attendants. And all those rules went out the window. And people were so I was the first group of women, well, I guess, and men to have children that grew up in an airline family, just like kind Neat. of an army brat, we yeah. called them, you know, airline brats. And they grew up with these travel privileges that most children don't have. And there was also, there were issues about the children dealing with their parents being gone on the on the trips and being the airplane and with what can happen. So we had to deal with things like that, that stewardesses had never had to deal with before. Right. I hadn't thought of that. But it was, it was, you know, I got to fly in the glory days. They're not that way anymore, but I'm grateful for the time I had. And I did have a wonderful 25 year career with it, American at the end. And uh, saw a lot of things and and was able to take my children on trips that I never would have been able to do otherwise. So. I love that. And I love that you were with it for 25 years. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who did that for that long. Well, believe it or not, I had some of my classmates that flew for 40 years or 40 something years. Wow. I know they just, made it, they just made it real easy to stay on. And by the time you're that age and that senior, you get to pick the easiest, best flights and drop stuff. And it's pretty easy <laughs> to stay on. So 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, you look at her. She's been doing this 40 years. It's okay if she drops something. Don't worry about it. Yeah, bless her. Bless her heart. <laughs> well, we need to wrap up, but I want to make sure everybody knows that you're going to be at homecoming this year on October 1st, 2022, to do a book signing of your book. We started this this tradition of having an alumni book signing um, on homecoming, and you're going to be there this year with your book, and I hope that people will come by to see you. Yes, I am, and I hope they will come by. Thank All you right. so much. All right. Well, we're looking forward to it. Gail, thank you so much for today. This has been, thank you for being so honest. This is not an easy thing to have a conversation about. So thank you for that. Well, my pleasure. And I appreciate the opportunity. And it's just, it's life happening, isn't it? Isn't it? I know. Life's, life happens while you're making plans. That's for sure. Right. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank everybody for being with us today on the Duck Pond Wall. And we hope you'll keep listening to WEHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia.